Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 148, recorded October 10th, 2013. Right, so today's our 78th 90s episode. We're back in the 90s after taking a few weeks off to do some IDW issues. Yes, and great they were. Yes, so we're doing the last, the last, Ken, of the original series DC run. Tell me about it. I'm going to miss them. Right. I think they were pretty good. Right. So DC itself will produce one or two more graphic novels you know, many, many years later once they buy out Wildstorm Comics, who will get the, the license from Marvel eventually, um, also in the 90s. So it's not the last time DC will ever touch the Star Trek universe, but it's the last time... They will do a ongoing series, right? Monthly, cranking them out. Yeah, unless they get the rights from IDW sometime in the future, which I kind of doubt. Nah, I'm kind of happy with what IDW is doing. Yeah, as long as they keep, you know, shaking it up a little bit with you know Legion of Superheroes and Doctor Who crossovers, and you know, stay away from the X Men crossovers that they did. That Marvel did. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it could go both ways. I really like the crossovers, but they can go wrong. Yeah. Well, especially if they don't do a decent job of explaining how the two worlds could overlap. Right. Since most of them don't seem like they would make any sense together. So, like X-Men and Next Gen. X-Men and Next Gen. And, and then there was also... The same time period. Well, not only that, but there was an original series X-Men crossover, and then they did a X-Men Next Generation crossover. Hmm. So it was the same X-Men, but just two different crews of the Enterprise. Right. Figure that have, one out. Have fun explaining that one, writers. <laughs> uh, we're off topic, but uh, when we do get around to doing that X-Men crossover episode, the Next Generation X-Men crossover does... I think do a fairly good job explaining it because it's when the Enterprise is doing its time travel from the end of First Contact to mm-hmm. supposedly get back to the normal time and then when they do that at the end of the episode with Data with his half of his face missing, they go through the time to go back to their real time and leave Cochrane and they end up doing a crossover with the Marvel Universe which, again, On the I way. Yeah, I thought that was actually kind of a, a, a good explanation. It didn't seem too terribly forced because they're already doing something muckety muck with time and uh, you know maybe different dimensions. So at least that one I thought wasn't just out of the blue where just suddenly Wolverine shows up on the cr- bridge. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we need to get around to doing those one of these days. We need to put it on the schedule sometime. Sounds good. All right. Well, until then, I uh, guess we should just jump into these these two issues, the the last two issues. 
Exactly. And so these are the end of a trilogy. Story arc. Quadrilogy, maybe. It's an officially a trilogy, but maybe a quadrilogy once we get to the last issue. Because even though 77 is not officially part of the series... We discussed that before. The events in 77 tie into the events in all three of these issues. Oh, yeah. So I don't, uh, know, I why they didn't, don't know why they didn't call that uh, issue one. Yeah, I agree with that. We brought that up before we first right. read that. Okay, shall we take yeah. a look at part two, or should we call it part three? Well, officially it's called Chosen Part Two Blood Enemies. So I guess we'll just stick with their names. You ready? Please. All right. So this came out January of 1996, published by DC Comics. And the writing staff was Kevin J. Ryan is the writer, Steve Irwin, the penciler, Terry Pallet, inker, Phil Felix is the letterer, Ray Murtaugh is the colorist, and Margaret Clark is the editor. And as always, based on Star Trek, created by Gene Roddenberry. So, like for the last couple of issues, this is story this story is set in the original series timeline. So, sometime maybe post season three or somewhere around there. The cover shows Spock and McCoy clad in the original series spacesuits in all of their campy glory. McCoy is being shown being sucked out into space through a hole in the hole. And Spock is reaching out for McCoy, maybe not going to be able to grab him in time. And the caption reads, Situation Critical. So the story starts with the Enterprise arriving at Starbase 7 from its recent run-in with the Klingons in the last issue. Just as a reminder, that story had the Enterprise answering a distress call from a Klingon colony inside of the uh, Klingon border, and uh, they were being attacked, or the Klingon colony was being attacked by an unseen attacker. And then when the Klingons came in, they saw the Enterprise there, they saw the destroyed colony, and they've obviously, they're blaming the Enterprise and the Federation for this. So Kirk meets with a gentleman named Admiral Springer, and he tells them that the Enterprise is being assigned to investigate a recently destroyed scout ship that was discovered by the Romulans. It's a very similar situation to what Kirk just left with the Klingons. Kirk is being assigned an ambassador for this mission, uh, much to Kirk's objection. So the briefing between the two men is cut short when the Admiral receives a communication from Starbase 14. Uh, it seems that that station is being attacked by some unknown enemy, and that life support is failing. Kirk is ordered to head there at top speed to investigate. The Enterprise arrives at Starbase 14, and they find out that the reactor core is going critical, and that due to the radiation from the core, they're unable to tell if there's any life signs aboard. The Romulan bird of prey that discovered the other Federation scout ship arrives to offer any type of assistance. Kirk accepts the offer from the Romulan commander and offers to let him beam over to the station along with his people, but the Romulan commander decides not to send anybody over at this time. Scotty, McCoy, and Spock beam over in their full space suits, just like in the cover. They arrive at the engine room, and Scotty needs the three of them to release the explosive bolts that hold the core in the station. And once these explosive bolts are released, 
core should fly out and the space station will be safe. They all go to their release buttons, which is, of course, spread out throughout the, uh, the room, and they all hit them at once, but the core does not eject. It seems that some of the debris from the space station is keeping the bay doors from opening. Scotty contacts Kirk and asks for the Enterprise to give him some assistance by removing some of the wreckage around the ejection port. Sulu is able to blast away some of the debris with the phasers, and the core is ejected and... I'm assuming goes far enough away from the space station before blowing up, but we're not told. It's just gone. So once the core is ejected, it does cause the pressure in the station to change, and McCoy is caught up and about to be blown away into space, except Spock is able to catch him at the very last moment. Once the pressure is back to normal, McCoy scans the area and finds that there are 70-plus life signs aboard the station. That's only 70 from a space station crew of thousands. The life signs end up being a classroom of children that had barricaded themselves when the attack started. Soon, a shuttle arrives ferrying the ambassador, who is assigned to the ship for this Romulan mission. She is a young woman named Bertrand. Once she steps off of the shuttle, she immediately offers her help with the 70 survivors from the station. Kirk allows her to help McCoy in any way she can. Sometime later, a medical vessel arrives and the survivors are transferred over. The Enterprise crew meets with the ambassador to discuss the situation. They speculate on the motivations of why the Romulans are using their old ships again. So they're not using the Klingon purchased ships. And they also speculate that this ship might be part of the Tal Shiar, which is a special intelligence branch of the Romulan military. Soon, the Romulan commander beams over. He is ready to investigate the attack on the Federation's scout ship and starbase. As he's stepping off the transporter pad, Kirk confronts him with a question about finding Romulan signature weapons on the station. The commander takes this as a threat, and he beams away, saying that his team will meet Kirk's back on the station. The final panels of the issue are of a captain's log recording, with Kirk thinking back to the first time he met Captain April. At that time, the man told him that he should always trust his gut. And right now, Kirk thinks that his gut is telling him that he is missing something very important. To be concluded... Cool. Well, it's definitely uh, setting us up for what's going to happen in the next one. These Romulans, I don't know. Don't trust them. I don't trust this guy because he has curly blonde hair. Kind of like Kirk. He looked like David when I first when I was first oh, kind of thumbing through the <laughs> book. I was like, is that an adult David? Yeah. Twenty years. And I don't remember seeing a blonde Romulan before. No, aside from Denise Crosby, who was half human. So. Oh. Yeah. This is okay. the first. So you think yes. maybe he's half-human and they just don't ever bother to explain it? I don't know. But I do know that looking at both of them, very similar colored hair and stuff, they seem rather similar. Right. Which I was kind of surprised about. Of course, they did show, when they're standing right next to each other, it looks like the Romulan commander is quite a bit taller. Than, than Kirk, Kirk, yes. yeah. Which Kirk that's good, up. because Shatner was not a tall man. Right. 
Yeah, Kirk comes up to about his nose. He's he's not too terribly tall. Right. So, anyways, not not a horrible issue. It's <laughs> kind of setting. I mean, I, I, not, not a lot. Not a lot happens. I mean, aside no. from the warp core, or, they, why a space station would have a warp core? <laughs> I don't know. They just kept calling it a core. They called it a so core. So I'm I called so it a they, reactor core. Well, but, and they called it a reactor core. Too. Did they? Okay. Yeah. So there was definitely a part in the book where I was completely thinking warp core. Right. And then I did write down a comment about it. And then I, I typed in warp core. It's like, warp core. Wait a minute. It's stationary. That doesn't make sense. So I went back and looked. And sure enough, it, it actually said reactor core at one point. Well, okay. I did think it was interesting. And you kind of alluded to, to it a little bit in your synopsis. When the warp core did finally, or, reactor core, ejected. <laughs> And then blew up. It was kind of cool. They showed the Enterprise and her shields kind of flaring a little bit from the blast. The only thing is, it's like right next to the space station. And the space station probably didn't have shields to protect it. No. It just doesn't make sense that no damage was taken by the space station, which still had people on it. Right. Because when, I mean, it shows it blowing up. Yeah. You see the Enterprise and then you don't see anything except for the explosion. Which kind of makes it like, did it just engulf the whole station? Don't know. Well, I definitely don't see. I think, I think the space station was close enough to the Enterprise, and right. you saw the and you saw the Enterprise take some force, at right. least from the shields that looked like they were flaring. So, space station must have, and I don't think they have enough power to to run shields after they've ejected their their reactor core. But right, whatever. What are those things you're not supposed to think about? And that did get me to thinking about, you know, just the whole idea of the warp core ejection in general. Because, you know, if you eject the warp core because it's about to go critical, you're basically dropping the engine out of your car. You're you're going to stop. (laughs) So how are you going to get away fast enough so that you don't get caught up in whatever's causing it to blow up? You know, so. Right. Yeah, and if, at least in next gen, they've talked a lot about fusion reactors, and you know maybe the impulse drive doesn't, you know, doesn't derive its power from the warp core. Okay, so but, they I don't know. Able to sneak away fast enough. Well, apparently not in uh, generations. So. Well, that's because Troy drove it straight into a planet. Oh, that's it. But exactly, you let the woman drive. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Just kidding. Just completely kidding. I just, I just going off of your uh, joke. I think you teed me up for. <laughs> that is a joke that they uh, purposely did. I think, I in one of the commentaries, uh, they did mention that they did that on purpose. <laughs> Made sure that she was the one driving. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I take that back. It was in a uh, Peter David novel, um, Imzadi Two, oh. that he he makes that joke. That's that's where I got that from. Okay. <laughs> cool. So, you gotta love Peter David. Oh yeah, yeah. He likes to make some uh, good humorous comments off of Star Trek history. Indeed. So, what do you think about the artistry? The artwork. Um, I liked it. Uh, none of it. I didn't think any of it was objectable. You? It was okay. Except I, I just gotta say, at the very beginning of this issue, when you're first, especially seeing Kirk. I think that was probably on page one. I mean, right off the bat, 
where he's going to see the Admiral? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so the second panel there. I mean, looking at that, that drawing of Kirk, I mean, he looks like he's out of high school or something. And and although you can tell it's Shatner, it kind of doesn't look like Shatner. I mean, it kind of does and kind of doesn't. Like and in the very first panel or the closest? It's the second oh. panel. Second panel. It's the closest, okay. the second panel. All right. Yeah. It just you know, just looking at it, it's like, okay, yeah, I can tell it's Shatner, but eh, there's a lot about that it doesn't look like Shatner. And he looks way too young, but whatever. Well, you got to remember, this is season two or three. <laughs> Still, I mean, he was like, what, 32 or 33 back then or something? He looks yeah. like he's lucky if he just got out of college or the academy. But. Yeah, I can see that. But but the rest of the pages, I thought he looked... Yeah, it, it decent. Yeah, not too bad. And again, so Admiral, the Admiral is blonde hair too. It's like there's this obsession with blonde hair and... Right. In these uh, these issues. Now, is he actually supposed to be a real... I mean, is he supposed to look like an actor who played an admiral in the TV series? See, he I looks don't... A little, he looks a little familiar somehow, but... I don't know. I don't know who Admiral Springer is. Well, Jerry's brother? I don't know. <laughs> doubt it. Probably not. I doubt it, but you never mm. know. I like seeing the Trouble with Tribbles Space Station K-9 style. Space Station? Uh, you mean Starbase 17? Oh, I'm sorry, Starbase 14? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't remember the number of this one, but yes. Right. So Starbase 14. 17. 14. Whatever. 14. 14. There you yeah, go. 14. It's, uh, it's the same style as the one they used in uh, Trouble with Triples. Right. Which I thought, now that's wow, the. That's cool. You've said in the past that you did a model of that one? Oh, multiple times. Oh, okay. Because you didn't get it right the first time, or you just really liked it? Mm, I had a tendency of breaking models. Uh, or misplacing them, or mom threw them out, I don't know what. But, yeah. It'd come around Christmas time or something, and I they'd say, what do you want, Ken? And I'd say, uh, how about an Enterprise model? Oh, the fifth one. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, I, I made a lot of Enterprise models. And a couple of these... And a few Romulan ones, or uh, Klingon ones. I probably made a Romulan at some one point or another. Used to love to make models when I was a kid. Models right. Thing. Did you paint them too, or just put them together? Um, it depended how. Uh, when I was younger, heck no, I never painted anything. But when I got older, I, I would paint them more. Right. And then I got into spray paint, and then by the time I did the uh, Enterprise A, uh, it was looking pretty good. Huh. Pretty good. Anyway, let's see. What else we got? Um, I don't really have a lot to, to say. I didn't really care for the three of them having to break the glass all at the same time. That seemed kind of convenient that there just happened to be three of them. Right. Uh, what would they have done if uh, McCoy was off helping somebody? Yeah. I mean, I know that that kind of stuff in real life, you know, to to do something that drastic, it might take more than you know, one person, but just seemed kind of weird that you have to climb down a, a silo of some sort and then all three of you have to hit a button at the same time. Right. Yep, I agree. And then getting McCoy sucked out into space, I mean, aside from him being in the shockwave of the exploding core, I mean, what would that have really done? They could have been beamed well, right back in. 
Yeah, he's in a, he's in a spacesuit. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But and that is an interesting point because he, I mean, he's in the core. Right. I mean, and they're all standing there, and then he starts to get sucked out over the the platform they're on or whatever into the core. So he would have gone through the opening where the where the reactor core used to be, mm-hmm. and then eventually he would have gotten sucked out. So, um, you think maybe he would have hit the walls and stuff on the way down and oh I could have broken that <laughs> would have been jelly by the but time that wasn't my, it that up. wasn't my point oh okay <laughs> <laughs> my point was the cover was showing him go right out a hole right right and 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 he was out it and his eyes were like going buggy and then Spock was too far away he wouldn't have done anything about it so the cover was a little different from what happened in the book in that he like went over the railing Spock grabbed his hand, and he was actually nowhere near space. But right. um, yeah, it, it definitely the cover was more had more urgency to it, and I, I kind of liked the look on McCoy's face. He was really scared. Right. Yeah. So it's, that's kind of a good grabber because you want people to buy the comics, so that kind of grabs your your interest. Right. But good point about the whole uh, beaming thing. As long as you can beam somebody around, it's like, what's the big deal? Right. Now, do you ever watch... Um, Stars does a little webisode thing called um, How It Should Have Ended, where it's like little flash animation, and uh, they take famous movies and... and are you, you know, Are what? you kidding me, or are you just setting me up for this? Because haven't uh, we talked no. about this before? Oh, have we? I don't know. I don't know what we talk about. But have yeah. you... Did you watch the recent uh, Into the Darkness, Star Trek Into Darkness? Yes, I did. And quite frankly, I had no idea they had that on uh, on TV at all. But, because they that used to be just a web-based thing. Right. And they've been doing it for years. And then I did start seeing they have a little stars, little logo thing or something on them. Right. So I wonder what all that was about. So they're actually showing it on that cable channel. I think they do it every once in a while, like in between episodes, in between cool. movies or stuff. And I know that... Cool. That uh, they used to do, you know, a certain movie told by bunnies within 60 seconds. Right. And I remember yeah. I, I caught that a time or two, actually, on the show, you know, in between shows or something. Sure. But I've never seen how it should have ended on the show itself, on the channel. But okay. that's not to say I don't I don't sit there and watch in between movies usually. If I'm going to watch something, I usually DVR it and watch it later anyways. Right. Exactly. So they could they could play anything in between movies. And you wouldn't know. Never know. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a clever idea, but for the DVRing generation, uh, that does seem like kind of pointless. But right. But but, they throw them on YouTube, and then you can watch them. Well, and and I go to the site, or else I see them on YouTube. Right. A lot of the gadget sites and Gadget and The Verge, they're always like putting links into those. So that gets me back there every once in a while. But I have seen a lot of them, and they've done a lot of good ones. But the one for Into Darkness I thought was good because it pointed out some of the a lot of problems, the things that we <laughs> talked about, is, and mainly yeah. the you know the trans warp beaming from the very first movie, you know, from sure. the last movie. If you had right. that, you would not need ships anymore. Yeah, and they and made I'll, it. I like that. So when Kirk comes out of being dead, he's been out for weeks, and they're all excited about going to the five-year mission. They some other guy tells them, "Oh, we don't really use ships anymore. They're too expensive. We just beam wherever we need to." And that makes so much sense. It does make sense. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, uh, I, the, the, you'll always need ships to some degree to do certain things. But if you got transwarp beaming, I mean, come on. It, it was like kind of like Stargate. So, uh, you know, most of the, the episodes there, you just went through the Stargate to get to different places because it was fast. It was immediate. Right. But you still needed ships. You just didn't rely on them as much as the Star Trek universe does. Right. So could, So they had faster than light ships in the Stargate universe as well? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, Stargate, Stargate Universe, Stargate Atlantis. They, yeah, they they had faster than light ships. Well, I knew that Stargate Universe did because they had a Stargate on the ship itself, right? That Didn't that kind of no. propel them? No. Oh, okay. Well, it no, shows but up, the, I knew. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they they've they've had stargates on uh, in the in the early seasons. Nobody ever had a stargate on a ship, but then the Guaud ha- had stargates on ships, and then eventually, you know, you started seeing them on like Earth ships, and definitely in Stargate Universe. Mm. All right. Well, what but now? if you if you had to do gunboat diplomacy <laughs> and bring a lot of weapons someplace, it was usually better to bring it on a ship. For example. Gotcha. Anyway, but, but with transwarp beaming, I mean, theoretically, you, you can beam anywhere because you don't need a receiving. Right. I mean, in Stargate, you always had to have a Stargate on each side. But right. with a transwarp beaming, you can go anywhere. Yeah, and I was thinking even maybe, I was thinking, well, you would still need ships for, you know, war and protecting and things like that, but you sure. really wouldn't because you could just transwarp you know, Genesis device onto Kronos and boom, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your yeah, if your device if your destructive devices are small enough and all powerful enough, sure. <laughs> and by the way, why can't you beam a ship someplace? Mm. I mean, if you got a transporter that can beam people and, and things, why can't you just scale it up? Do you not remember what happened on Deep Space Nine uh, no. a couple episodes ago? No. Where it like sent it to an alternate dimension well, but, and half okay, the station on. was there. Well, hold on. Was it, wasn't that the one where the transporter was on the ship, though? Yes. So the transporting device was on the ship that they attempted to transport. I didn't say that. <laughs> I think that is sheer lunacy. <laughs> that, that, that makes no sense to me at all. But well, I, I'm going to chalk it up to you know the computing power it would take to reconstruct a whole ship, you know, atom by atom. Mm. You know, it's tough enough to do a pure person, but to do well, a whole ship with hundreds of people. Uh, well, yeah, with hundreds of people, yeah. just but too hard. It's all scaling up. I mean, the complexity of the human body being able to. <laughs> scan it down to the atom so you can reconstitute it at another point. That's that's something. Yes, it is something. Anyway, whatever. We're off in the weeds. <laughs> so, Starbase 7, then he had to run over to Starbase 14, and then while they're at Starbase 14, a space shuttle with the Ambassador arrives from Starbase 12. Mm. So how close are these star bases from to each other? Cause... I thought they were pretty far from each other. Right. But speaking of that shuttle, that's a pretty nice sized shuttle. That reminded me like of a forerunner to the. Uh, it reminded me of a runabout. Runabout, right? That's yeah, pretty good I, size. I, I I don't recall seeing shuttles that large in Taws. Right. But this definitely proves that it does have a uh, warp drive. Right. 
otherwise, how did it get from Starbase 12? Right. And maybe it's a big enough ship that, you know, you could actually cram one in back in the stone knives and bearskins days of Taz. <laughs> so, anyways, I just thought that was weird that they brought up three different Starbases. Yeah. Yeah, because you'd think they would be pretty, pretty spread out. Right. And the medical frigate, not a fan. Never really liked that that look. Yeah, the the uh, the styrofoam ball at the end. Right. Or at the front. Yeah. Now this one shows a different angle that I'm used to seeing, and it actually has the little deflector dish within the the, the big ball. Right. I've never seen that before. Is that always on there? Um. Well, the medical ship that Doctor Crusher was on. You mean the USS Pascal? Pasteur. Pasteur, dang it. NCC 58925. That. Do you believe I knew that? Well, I think you're looking at it. I'm looking looking at a model. I got a model of it. Right. And um, the model I've got, which is a very small one, it's no big deal, a small one, um, I do not see any deflector dish on it. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. They usually don't leave that kind of detail out. Or it just wasn't there, because I've never seen it before. This is the first time I've seen a deflector dish on it. Yeah, well, um, I, you, you need a deflector dish. You would think, going um, at warp. And it's very seldom that they show Federation ships that don't have deflector dishes of some type, but I think every once in a while they uh, kind of leave it off, and they shouldn't. Right. Yeah, you don't want to run into that little particle of dust at warp, too. Nope, that would be bad. That would be bad. Yes. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, that's... Um, I kind of like the fact that the penciler did not go out and try to create the 1,000th uh, spacesuit design, Federation spacesuit design. So I'm glad they just reused the same one from the Tholian Web episode. I like is, that. Is that the first time we saw it? Because I thought we saw it in... Naked Now or Naked Time, whichever one was the original series. I I, I wasn't necessarily stating the first time we ever saw it. Oh, okay, my bad. Although, Sorry. although I, I'm just saying, they used the design that I know came from. I mean, they I know they had it in the Tholian Web episode. Um, if they had it in more than one, I don't know. But the main point is, rather than coming up with yet another. <laughs> spacesuit design with weird triangle shoulder things. Uh, right. You know, they went with the existing design, which I kind of liked. Right. Yeah. No, I liked it too. Yeah. E- e- you know, even though in my synopsis I did call it cheesy glory, but a lot <sighs> of the original series is cheesy, and I I like it for it. I like it because it's cheesy. <clears throat> okay. Just like I, you know, I love the little plastic nameplates that's on every every door that says like, you know, laboratory. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's cheesy, but I love it. I love its cheesiness. And it's so it's so back then too, because my my sister actually worked for a company that created those kind of uh, little signs. So. They were very common back in, like, uh, the 70s, probably the 60s, you know. Little plastic signs. 
Right, because you just don't know where the back computer is unless it has a little plastic sign oh, that says good Lord. back computer. Yeah, and you know, quite frankly, when you said cheesy, I was think- definitely thinking to myself, I never thought of Star Trek as cheesy, typically, but oh my gosh, Batman sure was. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, I think I think of both of them in the same... Oh, what, are you nuts? <laughs> no, I'm not nuts. They're nowhere... They're- they're nowhere near the same. What? Uh, they're both cheesy. They're not cheesy. Yes, well, one, Batman's cheesy. One's cheesy on purpose, and one's cheesy just because uh, it was made in the 60s, and kind of everything's cheesy back then. Ah, and I disagree. And I think we might have had this conversation before. <laughs> one, Batman revels in its cheesiness, and Star Trek just pretends like it's not there, but in hindsight, it's cheesy. Well, maybe the third season, but I think the first two seasons were... Very, very lovingly crafted. And again, I'm not talking. And, and, and I took like their it. audience seriously enough to come up with typically pretty interesting stories. But again, I'm not saying the stories were cheesy. I'm just saying the thoughts execution. of what the future is going so, to look like. Is, so you don't, you don't like the Enterprise? No, I love the Enterprise. It's beautiful. Uh, it's cheesy though. It, okay. By definition of what you just said. Now the little plastic data cards Are you saying those aren't <laughs> And you stick it in the big slot And it says computing Well what did they have Back then I mean They didn't even it's have cassettes cheesy. yet They had they had 8 track tapes They had reel to reel I mean I yeah it. those I'm... little plastic Squares were like the height of cool <laughs> I'm not saying it's not I'm saying that in hindsight That kind of stuff looks cheesy uh, Okay I will accept your statements. I do not agree with them, but I will accept them <laughs> as your opinion. All right. Yes, they're just my opinion. Okay. My last comment on this this issue mm-hmm. is that Kirk looks constipated in the middle of the last page of the issue. <laughs> and I know he's in a tough situation, but he just looks constipated. Where he's talking to the girl? Where he's talking to the girl. So there's the close-up of the girl in the purple, like, like whatever, stu- 60s stewardess hat. And right. then there's Kirk right next to her, and he's going, Excuse me, I really gotta go over here for a minute. I'll be right back. <laughs> yes, and he would look for a little plaque that said restroom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah, but look, I mean, if you, he looks constipated. Anyway. Yeah, <clears throat> looks like he's he's uh, in a little pain, a little he discomfort. Does. Uh, my last comment is I love that they actually brought back the original design for a Romulan bird of prey. Yes. And actually make reference to it that, oh, they're not using the Klingon surplus. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that they're bringing in the, like, Tal Shiar. I thought that yeah. I, liked, I liked that uh, that part of the story. I like that, too. It just It just seemed like that was like in both cases uncalled for Uncase, uncalled for to have the ship back well yeah I mean I like they did I like the fact they did it but I just don't think they had a very good explanation of why they did it and I uh, so I, I love that design I mean I'm, I think it's great that they have it back but I just don't think they had a very good explanation for why we saw it again and why did the Tel Shiar have to be involved in this I mean, it's great that they said, ooh, tell Shi'ar, you guys go and investigate this thing. But it's like, mm, 
I don't know. Fine, you did it. Kind of cool, but I just don't think there's a good enough explanation. Mm. I thought it was good, but well, okay. it is good, but it's just anyway. Okay. And especially because it allowed using the original design uh, of the bird of prey. Um, at the end of the next issue, you get a really good shot that I I look forward to. All right. Well, let's get to it so we can talk about it. Let's do it. So this is issue 80. It's The Chosen Part 3, and its title is Collision Course. Publish date is February 1996. The writer is Kevin J. Ryan. Penciler, Rachel Forbes Sees. Inker, Pablo Marcos. Pablo's back. Letterer, Phil Felix. Colorist, Ray Murtaugh. Margaret Clark and Jim McCann are the editors. The cover shows Kirk bending over a dead Romulan soldier on a planetary surface. A woman is standing behind him with her mouth open in grief or horror or something. She's screaming. Behind them, three Romulan soldiers are beaming onto the planet. Wiggly text states, Illusion of Guilt. The story most certainly does not start up with the last issue left off. Kirk is on a planet's surface, with Ambassador Julia Bertrand looking through a destroyed Romulan settlement. Dead Romulans are everywhere. The Ambassador warns Kirk that they must be careful. This will look just like a Federation attack to the Romulans. Right on cue, Commander Coram and two soldiers materialize behind them. They tell Kirk he will pay for this butchery of Romulan citizens. They push Kirk, an ambassador, to the edge of a cliff. Kirk's communicator is knocked to the ground. It flips open, and Scotty is reporting the Enterprise is under attack. Additional ships are showing up. They are losing antimatter containment. Kirk looks up and can see the Enterprise enter the atmosphere and explode. Kirk is cursing the heavens at the destruction of his ship and crew. Suddenly, Jim wakes up. Oh, it's just a bad dream. He can't sleep anymore after that bad dream, though. So he makes a log entry reminding us that two weeks ago they came to the aid of a Klingon colony and ended up accused of its destruction. Now they are investigating the destruction of a Federation starbase that appears to be Romulan work. However, the Romulans deny it. The Romulans sent a ship from a previously unknown secret military organization called the Tal Shiar to investigate the starbase attack. Kirk cannot shake the feeling that everything is not as it seems. He goes to the bridge and finds Spock there. He is studying ship's sensor logs for the past two weeks. He too believes there is something rotten in Denmark. Three days later, an extensive research on the broken station had been carried out by Spock's team and separately by Commander Coram's team. The Romulans are not sharing their findings, so Kirk decides to put an end to that. He calls Coram to the Enterprise to discuss the matter. Kirk tells Coram that the investigation has gathered all the useful data that's likely to be found, and he is ending it. Coram objects. Kirk tells him the extensive evidence points to only one conclusion, a Romulan attack. Coram again objects and categorically denies the accusation. 
Kirk offers to continue the investigation, but not in its current form. Given their recent experience with the Klingons, it is highly likely that a third party is carrying out attacks and planting evidence that makes it look like the other political entities are taking pot shots at each other, all for the purpose of putting them at each other's throats. They mention Gorns, Tholians, or even an unknown race that could be the perpetrator. Kirk says the investigation must go forward with complete cooperation. Koram gets on board by proposing drawing a straight line between the Klingon attack site and the starbase to determine possible points of origin. Kirk says they must also try to determine where the next attack will come and be ready for it. Koram immediately says the coming attack will be on a Romulan target. Agreed on their objectives, the meeting ends and the Romulans return to their ship. Ambassador Bertrand warns Kirk that this could be a Romulan trap. Kirk agrees, but he has thought it through and concludes that ending the Starbase investigation and moving on to other steps may force the Romulans to play their hand earlier than expected. Whether that is the case or a third party is manipulating them, the sooner they find out, the better. Spock applauds Kirk's logic and they go with the plan Kirk put into motion. En route to a potential target in Romulan space, Koram contacts Kirk with unexpected news. They intercepted a Federation diplomatic transmission that had a second message encoded within it. The second message was directed at a non-Federation world and contained information about the Klingon outpost and starbase attack. Also, a yet-to-occur attack on a Romulan target. Kirk and Spock immediately confront Ambassador Bertrand about the message. She foolishly turns to flee, but to where? Kirk and Spock grab her and take her to the brig. From her cell, she explains that her people are a proud planet and thought that they were the center of the universe. Their religion was predicated on it. When they discovered aliens existed, and a larger universe of which they were just a small player in, they could not take it. They deemed all intelligent life outside of their planet of metaphor unreal and a test of their faith. She tells McCoy that to her people, McCoy and the others are shadows of evil. She attempts to kill herself with a hat pin punctured to her wrist, but the clever Sherlock Kirk foresaw that eventuality and cleverly removed all poison from the device. When she refuses to tell Kirk what the next step in the plan is, he threatens to turn her over to the Romulans. She says she simply does not know what the next target is. She just sent the message recommending the time to proceed was there as soon as practical. Koram is informed of the confirmation of the ambassador and her people's guilt. He says that between Spock's analysis and their own, they are confident they know the next target. The two ships speed from Federation space to Romulan space to stop the attack. They arrive at the planet and begin their approach to establish orbit when a Klingon battlecruiser comes out of warp. It attacks the Enterprise and deals some savage attacks to their shields until finally the Romulan ship intercedes and comes between them. The three ships open a channel to each other. 
The Klingon commander, Kang, tells Koram to get out of the way so he can destroy the Enterprise for destroying their colony. Koram tells the Klingon to back off. Kirk tells Kang that the real perpetrators of the Klingon colony attack are on their way to this planet now. Eventually, Kang agrees to wait and see, but if the mysterious ship does not show up... Long-range sensors detect a ship approaching. Koram confirms it is not Romulan. Koram extends his invisibility cloak around the Enterprise, but only if they lower their shields and if the Klingons are allowed to keep their weapons hot and aimed at the Enterprise. Kirk does not like this one bit, but he agrees to it, and they wait for the interloper to arrive. It finally does, and indeed it looks like the same ship they previously encountered. They drop the cloaks and attack. The outnumbered Metaphor ship is quickly disabled. Their databanks show they are indeed the ship that committed the previous attacks. The three ship commanders meet to discuss their next steps. Kirk tells Kang and Koram the Metaphor will become a quarantine planet. Their attack ships will be taken in tow to Federation space along with Ambassador Bertrand to stand trial. Predictably, the Klingon and Romulans want the ship destroyed and the ambassador executed. Kirk says, no way, but the other two say, oh yes. Later, the Metan ship is destroyed by combined Romulan and Klingon weapons fire. There is nothing Kirk can do to stop it. Koram escorts the Enterprise and Klingon ships out of Romulan space. Spock conjectures this is the last time they will hear of the Metans for quite some time. The end. Poor ship blowing up. (laughs) Well, they deserved it. But but it is is rather a um, a barbarous way of handling things, but what do you want? Revenge Uh, is a dish best served cold. Yeah, but that was not cold. That was right off the fire. It is very cold in space. <laughs> um, I, I thought this was good. I liked the resolution, especially you know how Federation versus Romulans and Klingons uh, look at justice. Yeah. Um, it is barbaric and, you know, did, did killing those people really bring back the colonists and the, the people on the space station? No. No. Uh, but but those two captains felt good about killing those people, and that and that's all that they really got out of it. And probably their respect, well, at least the Klingons, yeah, they probably were feeling great. I mean, not, not only the people on the ship, but people back home too. You know? No, I'll tell you who's really feeling great: the Romulans, because they're out nothing. Exactly. None exactly. Of their, well, I take that back. They had that one ship in issue seventy-seven that did sacrifice itself to destroy. The other, uh, the first mystery ship. So, right. all right, they're out one one ship, but that seems pretty small compared to a whole colony, compared to uh, a, you know thousands of people on that space station. Yep. Oh yeah, no toys about it. The Federation and the Klingons are the ones most hurt by this, but uh, at least the Federation, being the good guys, want to go through due process and stuff. Right. And that was interesting when both captains, because you had to expect it. As as Kirk was rattling off all of these, you know, reasonable next steps and stuff, you had to expect that these two guys were going to like, ah, I don't think so. But I really was kind of expecting Kirk to...
stand his ground and carry the day, but he didn't. And I, I kind of like that, actually. I mean, it, it was Kirk being pragmatic. Yes, yes, what should happen is what they said, what the Federation wants to do. But it, in the end, <laughs> you got two ships versus one. What are you going to do? So, right. I, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, and yeah, just took, took it completely out of his hands, and, and he had no say-so. Exactly. Yeah, I thought it was good. It didn't really show how they got back to their ship because it seems like the very next panel, Enterprise is leaving, and and I was confused as to details. Did they leave? Details. Are they still there? They're just gonna hitch a ride with the the Enterprise from now on. Mm, no. Details. They're just moving along. Right. So, what'd you think of the artwork? I think. I think definitely I see... Okay. I see what I think is Pablo Marcus's influences. Very because much. definitely, especially in the beginning, Kirk is looking pretty beefy. He's mm-hmm. looking pretty muscular. Looks like he's been, you know, down in the steroids and being in the gym a bit. And that's definitely a hallmark of what Pablo tends to do. But he's the inker, right? He's so, the inker, right. I mean, obviously, being the inker, he can accentuate shadows and things to make, you know, maybe make make muscles look more defined. But the general shape is set out by the penciler, right? You would think so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But I, I was really seeing Marcus's influence there on page twelve when they were trying to subdue the the ambassador. Oh, let me you get know, on page twelve. Those, you know, that inking and that framing of her face and things like that really reminded me of Pablo Marcus. Right. Oh, yes, and specifically with 12. Right. In the bottom, yeah, definitely her because the shot is coming up a bit, so you're seeing her a little bit from the from from a lower angle and the shadows on her face. I definitely agree with that. But look at Kirk in the lower left hand cuz something that I just want to comment on of the issue some of the the drawing of the the actors we know and love is is good. It's it's mm-hmm. accurate, but there's a few panels where they're whacked, mm-hmm. and definitely in the bottom panel of uh, page twelve, Kirk does not look right at all. Right. Let I me mean, look at that face. I mean, Nimoy looks good, Spock looks good, mm-hmm. but that ain't Kirk. Right. Which I think is. A- is kind of been the hallmark of Pablo Marcus. Uh, yeah. uh, oftentimes, his artistic license. Yeah, he, he that looked just like like uh, this. Might be the first time I've seen Pablo Marcus on a original series, but yeah. you know when, when he was doing Next Gen, you know this. Yeah. One panel it looked just like Jonathan Frakes, and the next panel it looked like He Man. You know it was <laughs> <laughs> right. So. Yeah, and earlier on, there's a drawing of Nimoy, and it's like, mm, that... Uh, on page 13? That, no, uh, 13? Um, uh, no, it's earlier in the book. It's oh. like, uh, Nimoy... It, it, there's a picture where it's a close-up of Spock, and his nose is huge! And par- part of why it looks so... Yeah, there it is. Okay, found it. Oh, Nimoy, page five. right. Page 5. Page 5, bottom left. I mean, and that, now, it... He just doesn't put enough definition in the like left portion of of uh, Spock's nose, mm-hmm. but because he doesn't do that, it's like, oh my gosh, look at the honker on uh, Spock. 
You're right. Right, right, right. And the hands almost look a little bit too small. I mean, it's like, because he's yeah, got his, his little baby his hands, hands and a big exactly. giant head. <laughs> I mean, it's like the kind of stuff that I did when I was like, like, like 11 years old. You know, I, mm. I couldn't get my proportions right. You know, sorry. But. I, I mean, I've never seen your artistic, you know, prowess, but yeah, this has to be better than what you were doing when you were 12 years old. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean it's it's artistic license. It's it's not photorealistic and it's no. not supposed to be. So I mean, it didn't take me out of the book at all. It just I'm just throwing out my little nitpicks. Well, I thought the ships looked good. Uh, did they? Yeah, I think so. And I especially like the last shot, the last panel in the entire book, which shows. And I, I alluded to this earlier. It shows the Romulan bird of prey. The Enterprise and what almost looks like an upside down Klingon battlecruiser. Having all three of those together in a line like that, that just reminds me of childhood. <laughs> you know, having little plastic toys or full size models of those ships. Yeah, no, I really like I really like that shot. I like the shot there on page twenty two. I like it when they first coming around the planet there oh, the, right. the third panel on page twenty two. Right. But on page 16, when 16. the Enterprise and the Bird of Prey are warping away together uh, right oh, before right. they come yep. up to the Klingons, yep. I did not like that Enterprise. It yeah, the engineering section very looks weird. weird. So, yeah, the engineering section looks like it's really big. Right. Or something. Yeah, the Bird something. of Prey looks good. Bird of Prey looks good. It was just the Enterprise. Yeah. Something was very off. So, I, again, I, I think the the engineering section is out of proportion for the rest of the ship. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. But anyways, uh, like I said, none of it took me out of the out of the story, and and I I enjoyed the story. I liked the uh, the working together, filling from you know issue seventy seven, and I even liked the really 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 messed up beliefs that she had that she her people oh, her think her people. her people think the rest of the universe are just manifestations of evil and that they can they their purpose in life is to destroy them all i mean it's messed up but it's it's kind of interesting yeah it is interesting it's just so extreme it's like <laughs> ah! and spock even says it's a logical extension of their belief system. Right. And it's like, well, I guess it is. It's messed up, but it's it's a logical extension of their belief system. So, Right. So I'm uh, in the middle of reading the Stephen King novel Carrie, one of his, <laughs> one of his early, early, early ones. Okay. And her mentality here was reminding me of the mother. Uh, Carrie's mother. Yeah. That she does not live in the real world and she right. sees everybody as not being real people just kind of you know just manifestations of some evil spirit that's always trying to tempt them and 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 when she was talking i was hearing a lot of uh you know that kind of mentality <laughs> interesting which i thought was interesting really messed up and not 100 percent believable but um that you would think the whole universe is is uh, some sort of test but it's interesting well it is because I had never heard that concept before right exposed 
and I did like how it said that she had started to see them as real people and then she was torn because that meant that in her mind her faith was waning right so yep. I, you know so and that's she when was, she tried to kill herself right she was torn because her faith was waning because obviously it's wrong and she spent all last issue trying to save those 70 plus kids mm-hmm. uh, so I mean she's obviously a compassionate person and doesn't necessarily believe the dogma that you know all the rest of the universe is Evil, evil manifestations right so i like that i thought you know it was very abrupt i mean just within one page you're getting all this explanation of a whole civilization that came out of nowhere but it was an interesting yeah interesting concept i thought right right kind of makes me wonder if they didn't have a mandate that they were going to cancel it at issue 80 that maybe that storyline would have continued more and we would have gotten a little bit more out of her than just one page she's nice, and the next page she's evil. Evil and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> crazy, crazy. I have a comment. Mm-hmm. So, but this is my last one. The beginning. The dream sequence. The cover of the issue matches up with the dream sequence at the beginning. So they really are teeing you up to pull the rug out from under you here. So when I first started reading it, it's like they're on the planet. It's like, I'm like, what? Wait a minute. What? What's the last thing that happened in the pre, in 79? It's like, this doesn't make sense at all. And then I keep on reading it. It's like, oh, well, there must be a mistake. The Enterprise can't be blown up. I mean, come on. And then I see like some kind of a sign from the Enterprise hull or something. Yeah, you know. the plaque. Exactly. And it's like, there's no way it, that could be down there at Kirk's feet when it just exploded up there. This can't be real. Well, of course it's not real. The Enterprise can't be blown up. Uh, but you could even see the outline of the saucer section, you know, in the explosion and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, this has to be a dream or something. That is a dream. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, it's kind of interesting that they ex- they went there. They explored the possibility of Kirk being on a mission where he's forget about the girl but he's basically alone and he's lost his ship and everybody how would he react to it what would he do next I thought that was kind of interesting but it was just a stinking dream right Uh, I was with you I was very confused I thought maybe I was somehow missed an issue so it's like (laughs) how did they get to a planet they were on a space station right uh, And then when I saw it exploding, it reminded me a lot of Star Trek Three with the Enterprise blowing up and coming in the atmosphere like, right. like it does yep. there. Yep. And right. then that's when I realized, same as you, oh, this is a dream. <laughs> I can just go with it. Ooh, I didn't I miss anything. Off. I didn't miss anything. So yeah, did you know... It, oh, go ahead. Was it Dallas that a whole season was really a dream or something? Uh, or, I think or... several seasons. Oh, several? Oh my God, it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I think Patrick Duffy's character was sh- killed or something, and then she wakes up, and he comes out of the shower, and it was just a dream. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Anyway, so, same kind of thing. Did you notice the sign there, the plaque that Kirk is standing on while the Enterprise is blowing up? It says, USS Enterprise Starship Class. Yes. Is that a Constitution class? Yeah, but in the beginning, they, they did kind of uh, switch between... Starship class and Constitution class and Enterprise class. I've seen it all. I've the seen it called is, all three. The thing is, Starship is a generic term. Sure. 
I mean, a starship could be anything from the big old huge Enterprise D to the much smaller original Enterprise. So, I don't know. Starship class doesn't make sense. No, that's why they, they ditched it. As they should have. As they should have. All right, so you're done with comments? I'm done. All right, so real quick, we'll just do some of the the expanded universe stuff that came out in January and February. And unfortunately for all the books that are going to come out in March, April, and May, June, July, and August, and September, we're going to be skipping those because we won't have any comic books during all that time. So I don't know, maybe we'll highlight some of them on another day. But for now, we'll just stick with January and February. Sound good? Bueno. So in January 1996, there was an original series novel called Twilight's End by Jerry Olton. And this was a Taz five-year mission story. Not read it, so I won't be giving too much detail on it, if any. So we'll keep moving. (laughs) The next one uh, that also came out in January was Dragon's Honor by Cage Johnson, who never wrote another Star Trek book. Hmm. And Greg Cox. And Greg Cox is uh, a very prolific Star Trek writer who I think you might have be familiar with him because he wrote the Rise and Fall of Khan Noonien Sin mm-hmm. uh, novels. Uh, there was three of those, but he yep. he's written quite a few, quite a few from all timelines, franchises, however you want to talk about it. Then in February, there's three here. Uh, The first one is a Deep Space Nine novel called The Long Night by Dean Wesley Smith and Catherine, Kristen Catherine Rush. Kristen Catherine Rush and Dean Wesley Smith are a husband and wife duo. They've written quite a few Star Trek and Star Wars novels, so. Hmm. There was also a Deep Space Nine young adult novel entitled Gypsy World by Ted Peterson. This is, again, Nog and Jake on some crazy adventures. Some wacky adventure. Scooby-Doo style. (laughs) (laughs) The cover actually is Meddling kids. (laughs) Cover shows uh, Nog and some strange boy trying to keep Jake from falling over like a precipice of some sort. And then in the distance uh, at the bottom of this giant pit is a huge, huge, huge... Godzilla-sized um, wolf creature-looking thing. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it is what Again, it is. Those sound great. <laughs> and lastly, in February, there was a Voyager novel called *The Murdered Son* by Christy Golden. Uh, this is Christy Golden's first solo novel she had co-written another one with michael jan friedman before this but uh she would go on to be one of the main writers of the voyager post season seven writers so she was very actually she was the person who wrote like the first maybe six to ten novels of the the post season seven stories so she really set up what happened to Janeway and everybody after uh, the events of Star Trek Voyager hmm. so cool. so this is where she got her first taste of the uh, Voyager crew alright and that's it for this episode uh, next week we will be back and we're going to finish off Next Generation series with issue 79 and 80 and we'll also start off 
the Ill Wind miniseries. Uh, we'll, we'll do the first issue of that. <laughs> the Ill Wind. So that's yes. like the Mighty Wind, the Ill Wind. Any the... way you look at it, it could be um, stinky. All right. <laughs> well, it's written by Diane Duane, who was yeah. one of the uh, main writers of the original series and the animated series. Huh. So she's she's written a, one other comic book that we've done. So this is a, a mini series that they let her do. So it should be good. She should know her stuff. Good. Of course, it will be a bittersweet set of issues, as we will be saying goodbye to that old friend from DC. Right. Awesome. We, will, we will get another Next Generation DC to finish off that Ill Win miniseries, but yeah, it will it will end the 80-issue um, miniseries, or the 80-issue uh, ongoing. Right. Right. All right. Well, until then, hope everybody enjoyed it, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. <laughs>